The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. Today's guest is someone I've known in multiple capacities for a long time, and I'm delighted she's finally come on the show. Shauna Jans is a facilitator at the crossroads of grief, trauma, ritual, and ancestral healing. She's a queer cis woman of Northern European ancestry, and she holds a master's degree in policy and practice, specializing in feminist ethnographic approaches to analyzing institutional power relations. I got to tell you, I don't know what that means, but it sounds very badass, doesn't it? It just, it totally sounds like Shauna to me. Um, Shauna has been facilitating trauma-informed workshops since 2008 to a wide range of audiences, including within education, nonprofit, hospice, business, government, and indigenous settings locally and internationally. I've been in workshops with Shauna before that she's facilitated or co-facilitated. I've seen her speak and I've debriefed at restaurant tables after workshops <laughs> to sort of talk about how'd that go and um, her intellect and her warmth and her care is just, uh, you know, really unmatched. She's at one of the best. Shauna is presenting at Witches New Year on October 28th, and I'll say more about that at the end of the show. But for now, let's talk about grief and melancholy childhoods and, and being childless by choice, not to link those things together. They're totally unrelated, but the intersection of being child-free and ancestral veneration is fascinating to me because when we talk about lineage, there's, there's kind of an implication of continuance there, right? I personally did have a biological child, but I doubt my child will have a child. So it's interesting to me to cast my net a little wider when I ponder these questions, like who am I becoming an ancestor for? And when I think about my own spiritual practice of ancestral veneration, it's interesting to think about if I'm giving enough attention to ancestors I'm not directly descended from. You know, the aunties, the uncles, the chosen family that my way back people were connected to, those people who supported my way back people so that I could be here now, today. Anyway, Shauna is exactly who you want to ponder these questions with. So without further ado, here's Shauna. So Shauna, what identities do you lead with? Mm -hmm. Well, already I'm smiling because I know that you ask this question and, uh, I, I feel challenged by it right off the bat in terms of like, how do I answer this? Gosh. And so I feel like there's, I mean, there's so many identities that I carry. And in terms of what I lead with, it really depends on the relationship that I'm in or the relational context. So from that place, in terms of like this conversation and knowing you and having, you know, we've been gosh, we've known each other for over a decade, I think now in different communities, right? And knowing just the, the beautiful conversations that you bring to this podcast um, in that context, it feels important to name, uh, you know, part of my essence is someone who really is 
delighted by and in love with the inspiration and creativity and how that comes through um, and is like the essence of life and lover of life. That feels really important to name because that really is at the heart of everything I'm doing and the process of creativity and bringing things into the world um, and celebrating others who are doing the same. Um, I'm a ritualist, someone who's very much attuned to what we might call the unseen realms, the animate world, the spirit uh, realms. I'm very contemplative in my life. I, I spend a lot of time in contemplative practice. Solitude is very nourishing for me and is very supportive to, you know, how I roll through life. Um, and in this context, you know, I feel very comfortable to say that part of my ancestral um, tending and reclamation is in uh, Old Norse life ways. So coming into what it means to uh, be in Sather practice. So what in that tradition is called a vulva or a staff carrier. So oracular mediumship, connecting in, communing with spirits and spirits of place and ancestors and beyond through that way. And I think, you know, as I think about this in terms of um, which lexicon, uh, probably most like a hedge witch would be most mm -hmm. um, uh, aligned with how I am in terms of kind of a solitary, um, sim not a lot of ritual technology, so to speak, but a simplistic communing in uh, with that mediumship capacity. Um, I think in this moment too, it feels good to name that I'm, you know, I'm childless by choice. Um, I'm unmarried by choice. I'm practicing different ways of being in relationships outside of a, of a dominant um, kind of heteronormative monogamous structure and practicing being the key word <laughs> um, and what that brings uh, in continued learning. Um, and then as a, yeah, in vocational ways, I've, I've been referred to enough and related to enough that it, I'm feeling more and more comfortable. It didn't always sit comfortably on my tongue, but I'm a teacher and a mentor, uh, especially at the intersections of grief and ancestral healing and ritual work um, and a facilitator. Thank you. I've known you in many of these capacities and I, I, I basically love this question because it's so challenging, I find uh -huh. it challenging all the time too. Like what, what am I and what identities am I kind of like moving away from and which ones am I embracing? Which ones am I still kind of uncomfortable with? Uh, I've known you as a grief support worker, as a therapeutic support person. I've known you as a musician. Yes. I've known you as a ritualist. I've known you in your um, intuition and your mediumship. And so uh, it's really cool to hear you kind of rattle them all off at once. It's like, what, what an interesting person. Oh, thanks, Carmen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I would like the listeners to know, and I, I know that it's okay with him, but um, my husband, Ruben, has benefited from your support as a therapeutic practitioner and um, I think really helped him deepen his animism and his connection with the moon when he had always been saying, oh, I'm not really into like woo-woo stuff. I'm not really a spiritual guy. And I was like, oh my God, you are so, you are so, you uh -huh. are so. And I couldn't quite find like the words and it's different. That's not like my role as a partner. I don't want to like initiate my partner. That's bonk. I don't want to do that, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> that's not the labor I want to do, but, uh, 
but I appreciate having you close in our community and supporting us that way. So you've definitely helped shape um, our relationship in my marriage and, and the animism that's so alive in our household over here at the Spanderson. So um, it's been a long time overdue, but I wow. feel like having you here on the podcast now is really great timing because there's exciting things happening in your career. Mm, thank you, Carmen. And just, yeah, just really taking that in. It's not always that we get to hear the echo back of how our, you know, moments with people and interactions and relationships, um, whether they're whatever breadth or length they are, you know, that what the impact or influence can be. So I'm just, yeah, really receiving that in this moment and feeling a lot of gratitude and, and also like, yeah, awesome. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Okay, let's yeah. talk about you as a little kid, because okay. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, I've known you for a long time. You've, I think both of us have like become women, really, uh -huh. in the time that we've known each other, gone from yes. like younger women to like more mature, well-established women. But when I think about your life path and I think about the choices you've made, you even mm -hmm. mentioned being childless by choice and also doing ancestral veneration. There, uh -huh. For some, that there could sound like there's some contradictions there um, or maybe just some more understanding. Yep. But before we get to that, I'd like to know what was innate in you? Like, were you a melancholy mm -hmm. child? Were you, <laughs> were, you, were you like, how did you go into uh -huh. grief work? Did something yeah. happen? that led you down that path? Or did you come in with this sense of being able to kind of peer across the veil and feeling called to do work there? Mm -hmm. You know, it's never a coherent, uh, like easily tied in a bow story. Cause I think there's just so many circular influences that we, you know, find out in hindsight, but I can say as a child, there is both the essence of who I am and who I was, which was very vibrant, very uh, inquisitive, very insightful, um, loved, like, you know, I have memories of taking out all my grandmother's chiffon kind of scarves and putting on Enya and dancing in the living room and, you know, like just very joyful and very, um, I could say now like spiritual is very attuned to like um, felt sense and inspiration. Hmm. Um, but that would only be, oh, I, was, I loved reading too. Uh, that's just coming to me now. Uh, stories like Swiss Family Robinson, you know, like <laughs> being out in nature. Do you remember that story? Like yes. being out and like, I remember in, I don't know, grade school, there was one book and I, I, I don't know the name of it, but it was about, a young girl getting lost in the forest and befriending a pack of wolves to survive. And that has like just those imprints, right? Like mm -hmm. kind of these little nuggets of essence of, of little kiddo Shauna. Um, but the, yeah, that's not the full story just because, you know, our context shapes us. Um, so it is, does feel important to name that I also came from a, a childhood experience that was significantly neglectful um you know in a single it was just my mom single mom and, and myself and she yeah she was dealing with a lot of her own trauma responses and you know I can hold it in a lineage eagle eye view now and there was a lot of oscillation between pretty extreme neglect to very violent volatility and outburst and so that 
definitely honed me to be very quiet (laughs) and to be very adaptive and all the like survival, like adaptations that can come from that, which also plays into that, what is now a, you know, a more of a fine tunement of, of attunement rather than a hypervigilance, but in, because so much of my, uh, kiddo years was in was alone um what it did nourish is what I would have said what I would have said at one point like a rich imagination and a lot of imaginary friends and a lot of connection with animals and plants and trees and what I realized what I thought was imaginary friends in terms of how I was conditioned to perceive that time were actually different ancestors and guides, I still get emotional about that, you know, that they were just there from the beginning that I was connecting in with, but never had a framework for beyond that. Um, So really a source of resilience. So when it comes to grief work, I would say um, not by choice, but I came into this world heartbroken when you, you know, when you, you're not coming into an environment that knows how to receive or welcome you in. There is an inherent heartbrokenness in that. And then the, you know, f- coming through the, all the adaptive strategies, which we've now called complex developmental trauma and, and the responses to those, you know, it's been, there's that saying where, for healer healing people, it's like the medicine that you have to gift is also the medicine you most need. Hmm. And so it was actually the grief work that um, found me eventually that started to mirror to me and support me in like uh, melting away those layers of protection hmm. to actually come into more and more into the softness of a heart that is heartbroken and actually feel the grief that was too immense and out of my capacity to feel as a youngster. So it was actually in, oh gosh, I think it was like 2007, this woman who had sight came up to me randomly at a workshop and was like, you need to go talk to this organization called Learning Through Loss. They need you. I'm like, okay, it was specific. (laughs) And you know, when those messages come through, you're just kind of, it's like a a moment in time freezes and you can almost feel how this is going to resonate in future. Like it was one of those very intuitive psychic moments. I was like noted. (laughs) So, so my actual foray into grief was coming into a relationship with an organization called learning through loss, still based in Victoria I was with that organization for, gosh, 13 years, eventually becoming the executive director. Um, And it was all around grief education for youth. I was in schools for 10 years, you know, delivering grief education. Um, I was also in context of working with women coming from trauma and abuse and learning more about trauma at that time. And those two were really the mirror and the medicine for me that then also helped to nurture and deepen what it is that I also have to give, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Totally makes sense. So then when and why did the ancestral veneration work come to you? When did you have ah. the aha that it was like, oh, those weren't imaginary friends. Those were beloved ancestors <laughs> watching out for me. And now I need to pursue this. Uh-huh. I think it's an extended aha moment. <laughs> it's definitely not one moment. <laughs> However, there are some 
key experiences that kind of catalyzed or um, yeah, kind of gain more momentum. Uh, and I would say in, I'm, I had to kind of go back in time, what, it was about 2016 that I proactively signed up for a, um, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was a multi-day on the land workshop with connecting with your ancestors through uh, Peter Scanlon and Annie Bloom. And because the connection with certain ancestors was always there, but on kind of the edges uh, and in dream time and in a unrefined yet, like I had no one to mentor me in these ways. So I was having experiences I didn't have language for yet. As soon as I actually proactively like said yes to this, it just, yeah, it was a profound experience during that multi-day um, ritual experience which led me to uh, my 35th birthday, going out onto land, getting myself purposefully lost on purpose, you know, in this ritual way. And even though that scared the heck out of me, I did a ritual of commitment to really opening up to the fullness that I've always known has been there um, in terms of my spiritual capacity and my, what I would now call ritualist capacity, but really saying, I commit to this. Now I open myself up to be, you know, a vessel for what is fully mine to claim and how to be of service. Um, and gosh, life started changing very quickly after that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, my music career, uh, I paused it, which ended up being an end to it, which is fine. I, you know, it was a beautiful chapter, but it was just this like something bigger is meant to come through. And I soon left my executive director position at learning through loss, not because that work wasn't in line with what I was doing, but it was only su such a small dose of it. There was something much larger coming through. And so I've been since then, uh, I kind of affectionately call it coming out of the ancestral spirit closet <laughs> more and more. Um, and uh, yeah, deepening those capacities and, it, and yeah, it, it changes, it, it has changed my life and continues to, and at the heart of it is, is being shown how, how I'm meant to hold, um, this ritualist signature. Mm. Yeah. I'm very curious what you have learned through this apprenticeship to spirit and to ancestors around, um, ancestors who've been written out of history or concealed, through time and taboo and, you know, family mm. folklore that invisibilizes. Um, mm -hmm. What about all the, the, the people that we don't really hear about in our families? And, you know, yes. you become an adult and you're like, what, they had an older brother who died or something like that. Yes. You know, there's, there's, there's so much mystery and taboo. What have you learned in your experience uh -huh. about that? Yeah. Well, I can speak to some very just tangible ways that that has shown up in my own ancestral reconnection work and, and doing the proactive like research and prayer into finding out more. Um, and I think this actually weaves back around to what you're saying by like, oh, I'm in ancestral veneration work and yet I'm childless by choice. And so that also was a, a paradox in me that sat very uncomfortably for a long time. And I, and it was like something I was grappling with and trying to reconcile. And I remember in terms of being, you know, the, what you just said about being written out, I think this is probably an expression of that is, is at some point it was about 
probably about five years ago now. And it was such, again, a momentous experience for me because as, as I was grappling, like, oh goodness, like how, yeah, how can I be in this work and have chosen yet? Yeah, it feels so right to have chosen not to have children. And then I called in, I started off with calling in that the words I use was all the aunties, hmm. all the aunties of my, specifically my maternal lineage. And then suddenly the word started to come through, like all of those who decided not to have children, but were still seen and valued and had an absolute utmost vital importance to the health of the lineage. And I still get emotional around this. And just who showed up and the beauty of all these different identities, which we would now probably label as queer, like all these queer ancestors and aunties who just all of a sudden, I just felt the settling of like, oh, this is how I belong to this work. And no, my calling in this lifetime is not to uh, nurture one or two children, but it is to nurture something cultural in this moment and to re-enliven and to re-give visibility and voice and health to lineages now past and future. And I just, it was just such a homing beacon and, you know, as it tends to work like this, there have been countless people who, you know, when I've been supporting them with reconnecting in with their ancestors, this is part of their story also. And when we live in a dominant culture that doesn't, ex like, it's, it's just so um, um, focused on, like, um, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Nuclear, Nuclear family. family. Yeah, thank you. And who does that invisibilize? And those of us who aren't in that constellation, where is our place? And to name the, name the wound, named how that has been invisibilized, named how that continues to be in a dominant culture, and then to re-invite and claim that as a valuable, worthwhile, purposeful place. And to, it, it, it softens, it, the reckoning is still there, but there's a settling into the belonging to that. And that mm. was so important to me. And so in terms of that writing out, um, there's, I mean, there's also a few things that come to mind in terms of taboo and silencing. Um, yeah, on my dad's lineage, for example, um, gosh, I didn't even know until maybe six or seven years ago that we were of Mennonite lineage and ethnicity and religion. I didn't grow up in that, but it was broken very recently. Um, my great grandfather, no, my grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, who I never met, like that family, they, they came from what's now currently the location of Ukraine. Um, but had it been a several more weeks, I wouldn't be here right now because they were at the hands of the Bolshevik revolution and were stripped of any of their livelihood and were starving mm -hmm. and uh, barely made it as uh, refugees to Turtle Island here. Um, and so in terms of both like the intergenerational mm, unmetabolized grief and trauma from that, but also what was gone unnamed. So there's this beautiful book that I came across that my family created, which I'm so grateful for, because it's given me a lot of information and names and, and genealogy. 
but of course there's what's the story of like well they got here because of the canadian mennonite board of colonization right and a lot of mennonites were brought to turtle island because of their farming skills and were utilized that way and given safe passage and given land here right so but there's a storyline now that i can work with and i can understand so i can see how shame had you know got that uh it it invisibilized it Uh, my people just within one generation um you know the language and a lot of the farming techniques were gone Um, Mm. and then just one other i'll speak to and there's many more but i think this is very relevant here also as you know a, a white woman of colonial settler ancestry and lineage experiences is on my mom's side were very um, kind of long, long time colonial settlers to Turtle Island, likely from the Scotland Highlands clearances, um, afforded many privileges here on Turtle Island. And there was some secrecy in my family that's still there, um, whispers of being involved in either um, owning black people as slaves or possibly being a part of a plantation in the South. And this is so interesting. This only became more, um, became available in our family story once my mom died. So my mom died in 2020, and this sometimes happens, is suddenly the constellation, the lineage constellation changes. And even though I've done research before, suddenly, I'm like, oh my goodness, there's archives of my great grandmother speaking to a museum about, in Grand Junction, about colonizing that place and possibly coming from the South. Anyway, so information is slowly coming. And I, in a slow, titrated, steady process of continuing to pull those threads. And what does Mm -hmm. that mean for me and who I am and how I hold this work? What does it mean to be in right relationship with? With that, what does it mean for my own reparative um, invitations in this time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I really appreciate you highlighting the work of all the aloe parents, the, the aunties, the uncles, mm. the, um, yeah, women who were childless by choice, perimenopausal, or sorry, I should say menopausal yeah. women, like elders who are, um, you know, their, their kids are grown up and they have raised grandchildren as their own, all of these sort of these different ways that lineages are nurtured and how many people it takes just to get one kid to the next generation. And I mean, it's just an incredible um, amount of labor. And I also really appreciate the way you're doing ancestral veneration work in um, a way that acknowledges queer lineages Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. that, you know, I know that it, it has been happening for, I guess, as long as I've known about ancestral veneration work, but um, it's really important to bring it to the fore, especially as, as you know, we're, we're very collapsed. We're here on the Numinous podcast. And so we're thinking a lot about, um, you know, how we can support the next generation. And I, I actually don't know many kids who are straight now, yes. now that it's okay to talk uh-huh. about it more, it's like, I actually, I don't know many young people who aren't queer, actually. Uh-huh. So um, and what I think a lot about that. Yeah. And what a beautiful, and this, this is, this is what really enlivens me. So hearing what you're saying, 
knowing, you know, that decade that I was in schools, doing grief education with, with youth, like that is culture making, right? Because suddenly when our young ones are growing up without like being in the oceans of the values that we want them to be steeped in mm -hmm. and the beautiful ways that our humanity is expressed uh, through us. And yeah. And, and, and just to also say like, in my, in my experience as someone who has found some settling and belonging in being seen at least by my ancestors, my queer ones who didn't, who decided not to birth and gestate, um, gestate and birth children <laughs> is I still don't get the experience. I still have not had a lot of the experience of, of being able to nurture from this location, mm. young people in my life. I did mm. get that through being in schools. That's what mm. met that need, but I'm not living in a family system right now where that's something that's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's always going to be grief there. There's, you know, I, I felt it even as you named it. Um, mm. It's like, ah, oh, yeah. In the fulsomeness of this way I am, that would be more readily available. Mm -hmm. you know, and I love kids and I'm mm. great with them. Mm -hmm. And thank goodness mm -hmm. I was able to find a space for a while vocationally in terms of working mm -hmm. with youth in grief context. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but yeah, in the absence of the intact culture and intact village and um, being co-located in yes. more of a tribal sense, or even if it's chosen family, we're, we're all yes. pretty atomized in our individual nuclear boxes, even if it's just you and your houseplant, you know? Yeah. Um, I also have questions about people who don't know their ancestral lineage, whether through uh, adoption, through, mm -hmm. you know, traumatic loss or sudden loss, or, you know, just, you know, we, we lose, we, we lose the path yes. and the footsteps through time are just, you know, wiped out through whatever displacement, enslavement, um, mm -hmm. all of that. What do you say to folks who are curious about ancestral veneration, but don't know anything about their background and it's not going to show up on ancestry.com? Yeah. Yeah. That uh, it's all workable. And to first, I think both in that moment, which also speaks to a larger cultural moment we are in, we come to this work in the heartbreak, you know, grief is often our initiation into like what it is we've been missing whether we can totally name that or not. So really just holding it first and foremost in that, that like any of us who are stepping in towards ancestral healing work or grief work or speaking about collapse and how do we come together in that, like we are working in the wound. This is the heartbreak. So there are, the, so I guess first be like, there is nothing wrong with you for not knowing how to connect in or for having lost these threads, et cetera, right? Like this, we are in the cultural wound and this is a very personal, unique expression of it. And it is workable. And um, if that means spending time really supporting, strengthening intuition, retrusting again, our own embodied knowing, our dream time, uh, re-honing in how it is we, can be in dialogue and reciprocity with the animate and spirit world and starting from that place, the openings into ancestral connection work are so vast, actually, you know, in terms of who we're relating to or who, who feels most 
close in and we start there. And if that's coming into deeper relationship with seeing the land around you that you're a part of and starting to relate in a more animist way, in a reciprocity way to the animate ones that you are um, already embedded in, that is a type of ancestral healing work because our ancestors would have related that way too. So we're actually re-invoking and um, re-exploring, uh, learning all of these things, this a fundamentally deeply relational way of being in the world, that is ancestral work. Mm-hmm. We're calling in the qualities, the practices, the ways of being and knowing um, that is deeply relational, which is what dominant capitalist, patriarchal, supremacist culture is stripping away, Mm -hmm. right? It's non-relational. So how, so we start, we start there. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, oftentimes when people have um, invited me in to be alongside them in this work, if that's a place that they're starting from, as soon as there's this kind of permission and understanding of like, okay, I, I don't need to feel shame about this. This is actually an individual expression of a larger wound. Then the stories of like certain dreams or nudges or s- subtle intuitions come in. And that's where we start. That's the starting point. That's the opening because the ancestors have already been there at the door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're just recognizing and remembering that, that we have the capacity to listen. Mm. You're very experienced facilitator in groups as well as working one-on-one. And as you said, you, you are an educator as well and have lots of experience with that. Can you share a little bit about your teaching philosophy, particularly as you situate yourself as a Mm -hmm. white Mm -hmm. settler doing ancestral work? So like kind of in a nutshell, how do you reconcile all those intersections and the harmful pass downs and, and And also, Mm. you know, having learned from probably, it seems, from what I know, many white teachers, Mm -hmm. very often male um, and set mainly online or at least in a digital world, Mm -hmm. you know, not, you know, so not in an intact culture. Mm -hmm. How are you reconciling these? How do you think about the the kind of ritual the kind of practice the kind of process we need today versus maybe how our ancestors would have venerated their dead yes 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 gosh this is huge and so important yeah i'm just gonna lobby a softball here sean okay great what do you think i'm ready we're gonna try for that home run here um (laughs) first what comes through is ritual is always a response. It's quite a pragmatic response actually to the necessity of our time. So I want to kind of forefront that we are not in any of this work, whether it's grief work, trauma resolution work, um, ancestral work, um, especially ancestral work, going back to some past time, we are tuning into ways of being and knowing that are supportive for this moment now. So we can have the right size responsive given who we are and how we're embedded in a culture based on supremacy. So when we talk about, or when you ask how, what's important for me and what I'm always inviting others into, regardless of which arena and what the focus is, is to actually be in the discomfort of being deeply embedded in this dominant culture based on supremacy. 
and not to where do I go with this? I get, I, I feel like it's, it's important to get curious and explore and perhaps problematize even the ideas of intact culture and village at this time, because it's not that you and I, Carmen, aren't in an intact culture. We are in a very intact culture, but a culture we don't fucking want to be a part of, right? Dominant culture based in supremacy. Mm-hmm. So in order to work from that place, to work from the wound is to actually locate ourselves squarely in it and see clearly our enmeshment and our embeddedness in it. Mm-hmm. And that is ongoing work, learning and unlearning. And so I know for me, when I'm working with people, I feel more trustworthiness when I can see and know and feel that they are doing the work of knowing how they're embedded in this, given their own social location, their own ancestry, their identity, their you know, what is, what is of integrity to them given their identity? And I'm doing the same here. And I'm not going to pretend I'm somehow outside of this or that my teaching doesn't come from an imprint of village. I have not experienced village, but I'm not going to shrivel down and shame around that because this is the cultural wound. I'm also not going to feel like I don't have something to offer towards new culture building because of who I am and where I'm located, but I'm going to do my best always ongoing to name that, to learn where my own blind spots may be, to learn my proximity to power and to privilege, to um, be in the humility of that. And my imprint of like what, what is embodied and what is a continued work is understanding how being in this location as Shauna Jans as a white cisgendered queer woman of uh, lower middle class um, and all, all the different positionalities that I'm in. How do I be deeply in that? And if I know what doesn't feel good and right in that, then that's the imprint. You know what? I live in a dominant culture which is consistently minimizing grief. So where can I create more spaces to share and be in and to cultivate the skills of grieving. If I'm in a culture, dominant culture that continues to wanna take away my humanity and my capacity to be in presence, how do I create the spaces where we're doing the opposite, where we're seeing one another in our humanity, in the messiness together, where we're starting to understand how that impacts different bodies differently And while still being in a right-sized dignity within ourselves so we can offer that to others and come together from that place, how do I, um, in terms of teaching, you know, I, I offer pathways and practices and principles and like, what are the, what are the ways that we can support being in embodied presence together in a culture of urgency? What are the skills and togetherness that can help to slow down? So what is the medicine needed in that time? And I I feel, and I hope I'm articulating that well, it's like that makes me hopefully more useful and more trustworthy as someone who people are inviting in and extending trust to. And then it's up to me to continue being in integrity to that. Um, And that's gonna look different for all of us. It's not me to say like how you're supposed to be in the world or all of these things, because it's deeply relational. There are no answers. 
right? There's only responses, ongoing, ongoing responses. So how do we learn the skills that allow us to be present enough to be in a right size response, given any situation and given who we are in this context? Yeah. That sounds like a transferable skill. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good to me. And like, we're working in the heartbreak. We're working in the grief. I, I deeply yearn for village. I don't know if I'll ever actually experience it in this lifetime, but I mean, the ancestor work that's giving me an eagle eye view to at least want to work towards a future that may mm-hmm. be in that. And that mm-hmm. makes me feel worthy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's beautiful. like, okay, that's a valuable worthwhile endeavor. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So in your vision for the future, how do you imagine, how do you see us talking about and acting in collaboration with ancestors in the mm. normal course of daily living? Like, what do you believe might be possible in a world more fully mm. inhabited by both the living and the dead? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, let, let me just say, let's hope that it's even beyond anything I say now. It's beyond our wildest dreams. <laughs> Who, who am I in my little brain to, to know, but I can, um, yeah, I, I can feel into it. I think one of the things that comes alive for me, even in this moment that I've had glimpses of, and that I um, really try to show up with a framing of, that is really a daily everydayness of our interactions is, you know, what is a world when all of us are connected in our own ways that are meaningful uh, to us, to our our people, to our heritage, to rituals, um, all of those things. So that when I'm like here interacting with you, Carmen, I know that it's not just me, Shauna and you, Carmen, it's me and my people and the histories and the stories and the lineages that are showing up to you and your people and your history and your stories. And there's a whole, what I call the elder wisdom field that we're coming in with. And I believe that I've, I've been catching glimpses of it. I've noticed it in my own life. Um, gosh, if we all came from that place, I, I think that helps deepen our capacity to be in complexity, mm-hmm. uh, in more nuance, in more uh, compassion. And I've also had glimpses of when we approach the inevitable ruptures that happen in human relationships and we hold them in a larger picture with our ancestors in a ritual space that are tuned in with elders, whether those are embodied or um, elder ancestors, there's a different quality of, of a type of, so there's something else that's more generative and healing that can happen when it's held in that wider ecosystem of relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think that would fare us really well uh, mm. in terms of then what are the responses and then what gets inspired in those moments to then create and that's the culture making mm-hmm. um and I think if we're a people who are in deep connection with our dead and with our ancestors it also supports a more of an eagle eye view or a broader a broader horizon line of our lives which gosh do we need now you know in 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 this dominant culture, there's such a short sightedness, right. In terms of, oh gosh, so many things, but I think this would really extend how to think beyond ourselves and in longer timelines, which also feels like it'd be just a lot more sustainable and loving and, um, 
Yeah, yeah. I feel like we're not working as much in this vision. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're we're feel like we're kind of hanging out a lot more, we're and there's a up. lot more support, uh-huh. and there's we're doing a lot of other generative things, and probably you know we're we're probably going to a lot more um, rituals, uh, yes. wheel of the year events, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> like dropping you know, young people off at someone's house. Cause we're all going off to do something else. Like, I, yeah, more of the, the village, the aloe parenting. It sounds good. Can yeah. you say a little bit more about elder wisdom and, and mm. how also can, okay. So people who are listening, who are like salivating right now, who are like everything in their spirit is going, yes, yes, yes. And their ancestors are like, poke, 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 <laughs> trying to like, how, how can they work with you to tap into mm. more of this elder wisdom? Mm, yeah, beautiful. Um, a wonderful friend, colleague, um, kin of mine, Tamira Cousset and I are actually, we have an offering called Elder Wisdom. And what we mean by this and and uh, and what I invite people also into several of my offerings is one of the entry points, going back to that question, but like, where, what are possible ways of starting, right? is to understand that we are all inherently already surrounded by our people and our ancestors. And we can actively call in those specifically who hold elder qualities, um, who have been ripened uh, with a certain maturity and lived experience that hold whatever you want to, you know, you can, you can fill the definition of that in ways that are meaningful for you for you, but there's an elder wisdom field that's around us that we can access. And the more that we do that intentionally, um, it's like we're, there's a robustness in, in that connection. And so that can be a starting point. So Tamira and I, um, are offer a, an introduction to our introduction, which really, um, opens up the conversation about ancestral connection. What does it mean Why is it important to kind of cultivate the skills of embodied presence? What does it mean to be rooted in values of love and liberation and how that comes into our ancestral connection work? We are not coming from a place of answers. This is like, let's explore this together and then let's be in ritual together, calling in the elder wisdom field, being held in that and see what arises, right? Mm -hmm. Be in the practice of attunement and listening. So that's specifically... um, October 9th and uh, maybe we can put a, a link um, absolutely we'll put links yeah, in the yeah. show notes for sure and anyone who comes to that once you you are then invited to return at no cost any other time we're offering this in the future because we really want to it's like again on this in this online world how do we cultivate relationships um, and work within these beautiful modern tools um, <laughs> in, in good ways <laughs> and then um, I also, in terms of those who may be, as you said, salivating um, for the intersections of, of grief work and ritual and relationships, I have, it's one of my favorite courses to be in with people. It's called Belonging to the World, uh, Relationship and Ritual for the Heart of Grief. And this is really, um, I, I offer a pathway and practices and invitations that guide our process together um, but but are definitely ones that you're invited to fill in with in the ways that are relevant to you with who you are 
and your identity and your ancestral histories. But we do a deep dive into different principles of grieving into both um, embodied presence and energetic presence um, skills. We uh, invite in connection with land and animate ones as supports, as, as partners in grieving, Re recognizing our grief is um, can be a really big, beautiful part of the reciprocity of living alongside mm -hmm. spirit and animate ones. Um, we do a deep dive also not only into connecting in with this elder field and perhaps a very specific ancestral guide, um, but also teasing apart and exploring the rite of passage of death and mm. how that and, and bereavement and how in a modern culture that denies grief and bereavement a lot and spaces for that there's there can be an entanglement that happens between the living and the dead before that rite mm. of passage is complete. And so mm -hmm. we explore stuff like this. And also like, what does it mean to step into a vocation as someone who has um, the medicine for grief work? Or what does it mean to be in collective grief? Like what is actually our responsibility given our identity to grieve collectively? Mm. You know, where, mm -hmm. yeah, where is our heart medicine? So we explore all of that. Oh, it sounds really, well, deep and intense, but also very nourishing. Um, so yes, we'll definitely have lots of links in the show notes for that. And for your ongoing work, it's, you know, you're, you're teaching courses, it seems almost seasonally. Mm -hmm. And um, so people can get on your newsletter and follow and all that kind of stuff. We've talked a bit about grief. Maybe you'd like to say a little bit more about um, your personal practices mm. these days around it. But I also want to know, how do you work with rage? Mm. I, you know, so often rage is unacknowledged, particularly if you identify as woman or mm -hmm. if you um, identify as queer, it's mm -hmm. like, there's no place for rage in this dominant culture of yep. Yeah. Uh, white supremacist patriarchy. Yes. How do you personally cope with grief and, and also with rage? Oh yeah. I have been finding myself saying that grief and anger rage are siblings. They're very, they're very connected. What I can speak to in this moment is very personal to my process because I'm someone <laughs> who, uh, in times of vulnerability, which is grieving, right? Grief work is vulnerability work. My default, my kind of protective strategy was to go to anger and rage. I am, I have quick pathways that go there, which sometimes is surprising to the people that I work with because my, my cancer rising is very much at the forefront of, you know, the spaces I hold. And um, so it's interesting. I was, yeah, I, I was angry for the first 25 years of my life. And that came out in many different ways. And it's actually coming into the vulnerability of grief work that has um, actually dissipated those responses, the anger and rage responses, because they were, they were protective. So for me, um, there is less anger and rage that are protective strategies. There's more grief now and the softening and how I work with grief. I'm, I'm someone who journals. I've been journaling since grade four, you know, I think it was a need for mirroring and um, so, and, and movement and I ritualize everything, you know, I call in my ancestors, I call in the, the spirit ones that um, I'm in partnership with. And I'm someone who is still, you know, these are, these are uh, safe connections for me 
and my learning curve is still to be, and I, and I have to be with other humans grieving. So I kind of want to just name that because I know I'm not the only one, you know, we hear a lot about, oh, grieving should happen in community. Well, like ideally, yeah. And in, in village, yes. But the reality is many of us haven't had those experiences and that actually just overwhelms our nervous system more so mm-hmm. than allows us to grieve. We get into protective mm-hmm. strategies. So for me, um, the most meaningful grief movements typically happen uh, along, alongside my like Douglas fir and maple friends um, with the river, with my ancestors. Um, and when grief, I mean, sorry, when anger and rage do arise is very like authentic expressions rather than protective strategies. Movement is so important for me. Um, I'm, yeah, I do like intent, I'll go to the gym and do a really intense workout or I'll go for like a strenuous hike just to get the energy out first. And then it feels more generative. I think there's, there's a real capacity when we're able to hold the charge, hold the energetic charge of rage and anger. Gosh, is it motivating and, and actually very needed medicine uh, in these times. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Very needed. All your work is very needed, Shauna. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm super excited for people to get to work with you at Witches New Year on October 28th. You're doing a session working mm-hmm. quite specifically, mm-hmm. um, amplifying those uh, ancestors who've been invisibilized, who are of queer lineages and childless by choice lineages. And uh, it's going to be fantastic. People will get a, a, a chance to taste that, uh, which mm-hmm. is New Year this year, and the links will be um, in the show notes. And it, it's been really beautiful to see your work that I've experienced here in our local community um, mm-hmm. expand out across the interwebs. So uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for even the next decade of your career. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the podcast today, Shauna. Uh, thank you, Carmen. Thank you for the invitation. And, you know, I just want to name in this moment, it is, um, it's, it's a, special quality to connect with someone where we have been in some way witnessing one another in our stumbling grappling coming into and (laughs) right so I can just I can say the same thing and there's just such a like a mutual respect and like witnessing and um yeah it's good to know that we're yeah, it's good to know that there's a Carmen out there doing what she's doing, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not like we, I mean, we have community, we know people here doing this, but we have been doing this for a long time when, you know, in the town we were working in the city we were in, there's still a lot of social scorn and taboo around intuitive work and um, all of that. So, you know, yeah, we've been in trenches a long time. <laughs> If any part of this episode touched you, you will want to check out Shauna's website, uh, shaunajans.com. It's going to be linked in the show notes. You'll want to learn more about her courses. Many of them are online. And this episode is timely because she has a few coming up this fall and winter. She's got that nine-week online course, Belonging to the World, Relationships and Ritual for the Heart of Grief. And then uh, about a week later on October 9th with Tamira Cousset is Elder Wisdom, Connecting with Our Ancestral Ecosystems to Embody Love and Liberation. And then if you are somebody who's working as a professional therapeutic support person uh, on November 9th and 10th, she has a trauma-informed grief support 
professional development workshop. I'm also going to link through learning through loss for all the folks in my local area in and around Victoria, BC. They are an outstanding nonprofit that supports youth in and around Victoria, BC with just like excellent staff, great board members. Um, I've known about the organization for a long time. Um, I think I actually first heard about them uh, through my time as a volunteer on the local crisis line. I actually spent a year giving talks in local high schools and middle schools about suicide awareness and prevention. And that was like way back in the late 90s. And Learning Through Loss has been doing this work since then. Thank goodness. Um, so thank you for highlighting that for us, Shauna. And you'll find the links to the show notes uh, in your podcast player or at numinouspodcast.com. My listener shout out today is so great. I have here, my friends, a perfect example of a sweet and simple review that is awesomely effective. So this, like anyone who's feeling overwhelmed at the thought of leaving a review for the Spirited Kitchen, so like you're putting it off and not getting around to it, I'm telling you, this is how you do it. This is from Erin D. They gave it five out of five stars. The title, This Book Has a Forever Home in My Kitchen. The magic woven throughout these pages has touched my life in profound and unexpected ways. 10 out of 10 recommend. That's how you do it, my friends. Yeah, love it. Erin, coming through. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Okay, that's the assignment. I'm going to ask for this as my birthday present this year. If you want to give me the best birthday present ever, please leave a five-star review for The Spirited Kitchen. You know when my birthday is? October 28th. You know what else is happening October 28th, 2023? Witch's New Year. So you've heard already Shauna is leading an ancestral veneration session with special attention towards queer and non-binary ancestors and those ancestors who were childless. Plus, that day we're going to learn about the astrology of 2024. We're going to do a deep dive in the tarot card of the year as well. It's going to be fantastic. Recordings are included in the ticket price in case you can't make it live. And all you got to do is make sure you're on my newsletter to receive the announcement when tickets go on sale so you can come and hang out with us. Sign up for my newsletter at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Thanks for listening, and until next time, my friends, take care.